Have you ever begun a new season of life, a new venture, uh, maybe a new job, and wondered, is the Lord in this? Is the Lord behind this? Is he with me in this? Does he go before us as we head out on this venture? Maybe right now a new chapter is beginning in your life and you're asking those kinds of questions. Will God bless? Will he be there? Will he show up? Will he move and work? I have an answer for you. Maybe. Maybe. That's what 1 Samuel 4 shows us. It warns of presumption. We've been seeing that 1 Samuel begins in a time in Israel's history which wasn't so good for them. The book of Judges, chronologically before 1 Samuel, ended on this note. There was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. God isn't king and they're their own lawmakers. They do what is right in their own eyes. But for Samuel, though uh, beginning in dark days, it looks hopeful. It looks promising. There are these ups and downs. Even just in going through three chapters so far, we've seen several ups and downs. It's like a roller coaster. I mean, judges ended on such a, a bitter, dark note. And yes, for Samuel 1 begins similarly with this barrenness of Hannah. But she prays, and the Lord answers her prayer, and he gives her a son. And her prayer in chapter 2 is beyond hopeful. It's beyond optimistic. It, it, it doesn't look realistic. A lot of it's so future. It's about what will come. And God's going to bring a king. God's anointed. And he'll rule in God's strength. And he'll squash all enemies underfoot. But we've also been introduced to Eli in the same chapter. That high priest... He's decent, but weak. He doesn't rebuke his sons. His sons are priests with him, but they steal sacrifices from the people of God for their own bellies. They sleep with ladies at the front door of the tabernacle. You've got Hannah's son, Samuel. We saw him last week in chapter 3, and the Lord was calling Samuel. He began speaking to and through Samuel. Remember this from last week, chapter 3, verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. God wasn't speaking. He wasn't communicating to his people. That's a bad thing. Proverbs tells us where there is no revelation, the people perish. But chapter 3 ended, another roller coaster move. It ended with Samuel growing. Verse 19, the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that, the, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. No word, and then the word comes to all Israel. But, as we'll see in upcoming weeks, Samuel isn't mentioned for four more chapters again. There's no mention of Samuel. He, he looks so prominent, and, and it looks so promising, and, and yet there's just silence, and, and there's a lot of judgment as well. 1 Samuel 4 contains two battle scenes. The question is, how will they go? The roller coaster's gone up, it's gone down. 
Is this going to keep going up? Is it going to go down? Which way is this thing going to go? The first battle scene can be summarized like this. Hopeful times, but another defeat. Hopeful times, but another defeat. You see, the stage is set in the first verse. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. Really, that goes with the chapter before. Samuel now is a prophet of the Lord, and God speaks to his people. That's a good sign. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. Those wicked Philistines getting in the way of God's promises. Back in Judges 13, they started fighting Israel, and and really they've occupied the land ever since. This was God's land, you could say. It was a land flowing with milk and honey, and he had given it to his people. God promised they would have rest on all sides. But there's no rest. The Philistines are still this pesky problem. But maybe God's doing something new. How's this one going to go? Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. It looks like a hopeful time, but, but really there's another defeat. You see verse 2? The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men in the field of battle. Hmm. We see from here two reactions. First, Israel's reaction to this news, this battle being lost. Their reaction is like this. Dilemma turns to presumption. Dilemma turns to presumption. Verses 3 through 5, let's read these verses together. They say, When the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? There's dilemma. And then here's presumption. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. The dilemma begins by asking, why? Why has this happened? Notice, They see God behind it. Why has the Lord defeated us today? And for many reasons, they rightly ask, why? Why is this happening? Back in Moses' day, before they even entered the land, Moses said, Deuteronomy 31, The Lord will give them, the enemies, over to you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. It is the Lord who goes before you, and he'll be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. It doesn't look like that's happening here in 1 Samuel 4. And so they ask why, but they shouldn't be surprised. On the one hand, you can't blame them asking why. On the other hand, they shouldn't be surprised that this isn't going well, because at the same time, in Moses' day, when he was issuing these, these courage speeches about God making a way and leading through and protecting you and giving you victory, he was also warning, like this in Leviticus 26. 
But if you will not listen to me, God says, and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you. Deuteronomy 28 is another one of those. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. The Lord will cause you to be defeated. And you shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. You shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. You see, these verses should have been in the minds of the leaders of Israel in 1 Samuel 4. They ask why, but notice they don't seem to ask God why. And that's unusual. It's just this floating question out there. Why has the Lord done this? They're saying it to each other. Maybe each man's saying it to himself. But before this and after this, various times in the Bible, when Israel's going to war, they often inquire of the Lord. A prophet, a priest, a king will inquire of the Lord. They will seek the Lord. They'll say, God, are you with us? Do you go before us? Do we have a green light to go? Are you going to make a way? Are you going to give us the victory here? They don't do that this time. There's a why, but no mention of seeking the Lord. And there's certainly no waiting for an answer. They come up with an answer on their own almost immediately. Doggone it, we forgot to bring the ark. That's it. That's why we lost. The ark, of course. The ark is this box wrapped in gold called here the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. It was a symbol of God's mediating presence among his people. It was like his throne. On the Day of Atonement, once a year, blood was poured on top as a sacrifice. Inside were ten commandments, a staff, manna, symbols of God leading his people and ruling over his people. It wasn't to be touched, as you know. And here they think, go get the ark. Go get the ark. And why would they think that? Well, in Joshua 3, the ark leads the way through the Jordan River. They cross the Jordan with the ark going first. And it, just like the parting of the Red Sea, the waters go up and they cross through on dry land. In Joshua 6... There's the battle of Jericho. And the ark leads the way on that march around the city. Remember, they had to march around seven times. On the seventh time, the people would shout, and they'd blow a trumpet, and the walls came tumbling down, as the song goes. Right? Here, the people in 1 Samuel 4 are thinking similarly. They're trying to recreate Jericho. They even shout like the people were told to do in Joshua. But here's a big difference between Joshua 3 and 6, and then over here in 1 Samuel 4. In Joshua 3 and 6, God commanded the people to use the ark like that. It was God's idea. He said if they put it out front, it would lead the way and he would have the victory. But in 1 Samuel 4, God doesn't say anything like that. He's not speaking here. The people get the bright idea. 
And so they're using it like a rabbit's foot, like a good luck charm. Most translations hint at that with the word it in verse 3. Not he, it. Let us bring the ark that it may come among us and save us. I'm getting ahead in the story. You can kind of see where this is going already, but not because we've read that much of the passage. It isn't clear how it's going to go yet. Hence the Philistines' reaction to it. How do the Philistines react to all this? Well, fear turns to self-confidence. The Philistines react to the Israelites getting the Ark of the Covenant and shouting about it like this. Verse 6, when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a god has come into the camp. They said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. It's fear, but they turn to self-confidence. They give themselves a pep talk in verse 9. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they've been to you. Be men and fight. What a remarkable bit this is in the story. The Philistines know about Egypt book of the Bible we call Exodus. They know about that story. They know about the plagues. They know about God's rescue of his people through mighty, miraculous acts. They know that the ark represents a divine presence. Yeah, they're polytheists, so they put it in terms of gods. The gods are there in the midst, but, but at least they attribute some divine power to what's going on. And they're rightly afraid. It seems like doom is on the horizon until they muster up from within. They have no else to go, nowhere else to, to, to get power except within. Maybe they're gods as well, but, but this pep talk gets them going, and they go to war, a second battle. What will happen this one? What will happen here? Now, now the people of God have the box of God, the presence of God? They have the ark. Was this Joshua 6, take 2? Well, no. It's utter defeat, and the ark is captured. Verses 10 to 11 bring us to a climax. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. 4,000 the first battle, 30,000 the second battle. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. And picture this. The two priests, gone. No one to lead on with this priestly line. 30,000 men obliterated. What's that battle scene look like? The rest, they're at home, hiding. And the ark has been taken by uncircumcised Gentile Philistines. We'll see in the next chapter. They put it 
in the temple of their idol god alongside him. Why has this happened? I mean, it looks like not just judgment, but God defeated. It looks like God's been captured. The bad guys not only have our box of worship and sacrifice, but they, they got God. Why would God let this happen? He could have stopped the Philistines. He could have given his people victory, but he didn't. Well, for one reason, he was bringing fulfillment to that judgment of Eli's house that was promised back in chapter 2 and reiterated again in chapter 3. Remember that? Chapter 2, verse 12, Eli's sons were worthless men and their sin was great before the Lord. And then it goes on to describe that sin. And then a man of God shows up and he speaks of God's coming judgment on Eli's house Over a dozen verses of judgment reiterated and reiterated. You see, in verse 13 of of 1 Samuel 2, God is going to destroy Eli's line. His two sons are going to die on the same day. And then, as we saw last week, this is now God speaking through Samuel and to Samuel. And what does he speak to Samuel? He speaks of Eli's judgment. Chapter 4 brings that to fulfillment, doesn't it? You can just hear it's coming. When you you know of judgment spoken in chapter 2 and reiterated in chapter 3, and then you get to chapter 4, and Hophni and Phinehas were with the ark. It's judgment. But it's not just Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, rather, who are the problem. Notice who asks the question of why in verse 3. Who is it that says, let's go get the ark? It's the elders. The broader leadership of Israel. Who is it four chapters later who will begin the mantra for the people? Give us a king! Give us a king! And thereby rejecting Yahweh as their king? It's the elders. The broader leadership of Israel is, is also weak. And under judgment. The people also are part of the problem. Look over at 1 Samuel 7 with me. 1 Samuel 7 is important for us. We'll get to it in weeks to come. But it it gives us something of a pulse of the people at the time of 1 Samuel 4. 1 Samuel 7 and verse 3 it says... Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals, the idols, the the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Why were they being defeated by the Philistines once again? Well, Samuel tells us. They embraced other gods even while they knew Yahweh, the God of the Ark, of the covenant of the Lord, between the cherubim, even though they looked to him for rescue. They dabbled in idolatry as well. So God's judgment in 1 Samuel 4 is spot on. It's hard to read, but it's spot on. He's defending his honor. It doesn't look like it, but he's defending his honor. It looks like things are moving backwards, but no, he's moving forward. 
It looked like he was defeated. Oh, he's in perfect control of everything. Don't worry. But he's sending a very strong message to his people. And he's judging them. Judging them for their sin, their idolatry, for this wicked leadership. Also judging them for their presumption. Their use of this ark to get what they want, what they think they need. They're not just presumptuous, they're superstitious about it. They're superstitious. But God is no rabbit's foot. In Raiders of the Lost Ark, you knew I'd get there eventually, right? In Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Nazis want to find the Ark in order to ensure victory in World War II. And Indiana Jones has to stop them so that they don't have this omnipotent fighting power. But if they had just read 1 Samuel 4, they could have just stayed home in their lazy boys and not bothered. The gold box doesn't do anything. It's the God of the gold box that matters. The gold box doesn't obligate God. You can't carry him into your battle and guarantee a win. Just like you can't obligate God by being baptized. Your baptism doesn't demand his mercy. You don't get an extra blessing by wearing a cross on your neck or hanging one on a wall. A picture of Jesus' face in your home doesn't keep you safe or ensure that he's there. Listening to Christian music doesn't chase away the devil. Communion or the Lord's Supper isn't some sort of religious medicine that gets God on our side and keeps him on our side until next month. Bible verses hung around the house don't keep demons away. And they don't necessarily make God smile. It's easy for us to roll our eyes at 1 Samuel 4, them thinking that the ark would, would garner God's blessing, that they could harness God's power, but we often operate pretty similarly. Some big fork in the road comes into our lives. Some major trial comes upon us. It gets our attention, we say. So we say things, we say things like, we got to get back to church. We really should make that a bigger priority. we got to be more faithful. I really should read my Bible. I need to pray more. Maybe it's time to start giving, honey. Maybe we should get real desperate and fast. Now, all these are good things. We should do these things, but we should do these things in response to God's grace not by trying to earn his favor or to get our way or to make some hard circumstances stop. Is it possible that you are far more superstitious in your faith than you think? The answer is yes for all of us. But back to 1 Samuel 4. Despite the superstition and idolatry, they know enough to be shocked and horrified at the news that the army got obliterated in the battlefield and the ark was captured more importantly verse 13 says all the city cried out 
But that's just a passing comment. The rest of the chapter focuses in on two important reactions to the army being obliterated. Hophni and Phinehas being killed and the ark being taken. The first reaction is Eli. With Eli, we see proper shock leading to ironic death. Proper shock leads to ironic death in verses 12 to 18. It's a a bit of a long section, but let's read these verses together. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt in his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. He knows it's out there. He knows it's on the front lines of battle, and he's desperately waiting for news on how it goes. When the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he says, What's this uproar? And the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he couldn't see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. He said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there's also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, also Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, not his sons being killed, not 30,000 dead, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. The news is multi-layered, and the greatest woe keeps getting put at the end. The ark of God has been captured. With this, Eli died. Crushed by his own weight. That's ironic. It's ironic because there's been a play on words happening for several chapters now. The word heavy in Hebrew and the word glory in Hebrew are very similar words, both in the way they sound and in what they mean. Glory means weight. When we say that God is glorious, we say he's heavy, he's weighty. Well... Back in chapter 2, verse 12, when Hophni and Phinehas are introduced, we're told they are worthless men. They're light. But their sin was very great. Their sin was heavy. Why? Well, they would eat all the fat of the people from the sacrifices, stealing from the people and the Lord. We're told in chapter 2, verse 29, That with his sons, Eli too was fattening himself up on the choicest of meats. Weight, glory. And God said in the next verse, those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Those who think themselves heavy will be light. Then we come to chapter 4, verse 18, where Eli dies, and he died because he was old and heavy. The one who looked glorious now is dead. Dead under his own glory, weight, sin. 
And hence, we'll see as this chapter unfolds one more layer, the glory has departed even. That's the second reaction. A wife, it's actually Eli's daughter-in-law, she has a tragic birth, and there's also a symbolic name. A tragic birth and a symbolic name. Let's read the last four verses together. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, notice that, she died in childbearing. At the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she didn't answer or pay attention. She named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. What a tragic scene. A mother's last words, naming her newborn son, no glory, no weight, glory gone. He's not here. And she's right. The glory had departed. As clear as the ark was no longer there, the glory had departed. But most likely, that was just a representation that the glory had already departed. God had already left. In judgment, God had already slipped away. Yes, God was doing a new thing in these days. Yes, he was now speaking through his prophet Samuel. We'll see that play out in its importance over, over many weeks to come. But he was also judging his wayward people, especially these wicked priests. And his judgment was withdrawal. No longer there. Glory gone. No longer in the midst of the people. And chapter 4 ends like that. No silver lining. No wink and a smile. No little musical chime there to, to get you to think about next week. What's going to happen as I turn the page? Well, guess what? The ark is still with the Philistines. That's what. If this were the last chapter in the Bible, we should pack it up and never meet here again. If this were the last chapter in our Bible... We shouldn't read the Bible ever again. We've been duped. But it's not the last chapter in our Bible, is it? It is far from the last chapter from the story. Yes, the story will go on to have all kinds of ups and downs. God's presence, his power, his glory, working with his people and in his people, among his people. There are all kinds of roller coaster ups and downs in the rest of the story of 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel or on and on the chronology goes. But it's not an endless cycle of ups and downs. It's not an aimless story of ups and downs. There's a progression, isn't there? So fast forward a thousand years. Fast forward to the time of Christ. Let's talk lastly about God's presence, his power, and his glory in another time. 
Because that's really what's at stake in, in 1 Samuel 4. God's presence and his power and his glory. Is he with us or against us? Is he among us or out there? Is he here or nowhere? If 1 Samuel 4 is a story of Ichabod, no glory, glory departed, then the whole New Testament is a story of another name, Emmanuel. God with us. Isaiah 7 promised the day would come when a virgin would give birth to a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And in Matthew 1, we see that the angels say, you'll call his name Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sins, and he will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's now here. John 1 tells us about this glory. When it says, Jesus, the word, he became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Not the glory of a gold box. Not even the glory of the cloud of God's presence descending upon that gold box. Not the glory of the ark parting the Jordan or defeating Jericho. But God's glory shown in a person, in the face of Christ. How can the glory of God dwell that closely with people, though? Sinful people. I mean, that's why God left, you could say, in 1 Samuel 4 or before the people's wickedness. Yeah, but on the cross, Jesus was forsaken by the Father so that we would never be. He was forsaken for us. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The glory departed at that moment. The sky turned black at that moment. The earth trembled then. The glory departed then so that it would shine in our hearts later on. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us the same God who said, light shall shine out of darkness back in creation. Well, that same one has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's a lot of prepositions there, isn't it? What's it mean? I don't fully know. I know it's good, though. It's really, really good. Our hearts were dark. And God sovereignly shined saving light into our dark hearts. It was a light of knowledge. It was a light of glory. It was the light of God's glory. And it's the one that shines so, bright, so brightly on the face of Christ. You say, but Ryan, Jesus went to heaven though. He didn't stay among us. Yeah, he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. And he told the disciples, it's good that I go away because the Comforter will come. The Holy Spirit. It'll be me in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory, Paul writes in Colossians 1. The Spirit dwells within the hearts of believers. Them making up a, a spiritual temple or tabernacle for God's presence. He no longer dwells in gold boxes, but in 
human hearts. It's unthinkable. And that's where this whole thing's going. It's not done yet. It's not just dwelling in our hearts spiritually and invisibly. But one day we'll see him face to face. In John 17, Jesus prayed for his disciples that one day that we would be with him to see his glory. And Revelation 21 ends on this note about the new heaven and the new earth that comes at the end of the age. Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they'll be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The apostle John saw a holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God in its radiance like a most rare jewel. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the lamb, the sacrificed lamb, risen on the third day, now triumphant, victorious, salvation incarnate. Remember I began by asking whether God is with us at any given moment, whether God is for us, whether God is in our midst, whether he'll go with us. Remember I said, maybe, Christ is the dividing line. Christ is the dividing line. That's why I said maybe. You get his presence and his power and his glory in Christ and no other way. No other way. In Jesus, there's no maybe, though. Only yes and amen. Outside of Jesus, Ichabod. No glory. But in and through Jesus, God will do us good with all of his heart and soul and strength and might. Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. In Jesus, God works powerfully in us and and to us and, and through us to others. In Jesus, the glory doesn't depart. The glory doesn't go out. In Jesus, we never say, He is not there. No Ichabod, only Emmanuel. Let's bow and thank the Lord for such a Savior as this. Father, we begin by confessing our need for a Savior. We know our own hearts are superstitious. We often play religious things to try to get you on our side. And we confess that we have no hope but Christ. Help us to know that more today as a result of 1 Samuel 4 and and what else you said in your word. Father, help us to see that this changes everything. That if Christ is for us, who can be against us? That there's no longer any Ichabod, no glory, glory gone. But it's full of glory, full of grace, full of truth. Help us, Lord, to put our trials, our doubts, our worries, our pains, our sorrows next to the light of the glory 
of God that shines on the face of Christ. Help us to see if you will do us good and if you will be in our midst and if you'll go with us and you'll show us your glory and work powerfully as you have in Christ, then we don't have to fear tomorrow. We don't have to fear people. We don't even have to fear Philistines. We thank you for your grace. Help us now to sing of that with joy and faith. Amen.